Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Um, let me start with a word of thanks and a word of apology. My thanks go to the organisers um, sitting around us for inviting me to come and talk to you this morning. The apology is that I'm unfortunately unable to stay for most of the conference because at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning I have to be teaching students back in Sheffield. And it's there that I want to start because part of the responsibility of the, the, the academic and public historian is not only to research and to write but also to teach and to impart whatever knowledge they can to succeeding generations. So tomorrow morning at 9am I'll be talking to a new group of students who are about to start a final year study of the Holocaust. And one of the first things I'm going to get them to think about is how much the study of the topic has changed over the last 50 or 60 years. Because invariably they are somewhat shocked to find out that going back to the period between 1945 and say 1965, the Holocaust was relatively unresearched or in a sense marginalised from the development of European social history. And it's only in the last 20 or 30 years that it's become or taken up the point that it has now of being so dominant, not only in its own right as a topic, and it's very difficult to avoid it in any form of, of, of discourse, be it public or, or academic, um, but also in terms of its, the, the sheer scale of what it does to dominate the writing of social history of the occupation period, and indeed the post-war period as well. That's true not only of the Netherlands, where my own expertise lies, but also in many other countries as well. As they've very kindly introduced me, my most recent work has been on the whole topic of the rescue of Jews, and you may well realise then why I've been invited to come and talk to you this morning. But I've tried to look at it not in a national context, but in an inter international comparative context, but partially the title will be given only in terms of Western Europe. Um, that's partly a linguistic problem, that my knowledge of Western European languages is pretty poor. My knowledge of Eastern European languages is almost non-existent. So you stick to your strengths and you try and work on that basis. But it is that comparative method of seeing what questions might be asked from a knowledge of one country as to how that might be applied to others, which is where I want to go today in this morning. There is a problem with Holocaust historiography and the writing of Holocaust studies. Um, I'm going to just outline two issues here. One is a sense of myopia, that increasingly as the, 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 the body of literature, the body of information has got bigger and bigger, people have specialised on smaller and smaller areas. And that's led to a situation where you can now find books on the Holocaust in, or the, the, the Jewish question in, or whatever it happens to be. But they have very little, if any, contextual material that puts the events that they describe and try to analyse in a wider set of parameters. You could almost think that these events were happening in isolation, without any reference to other issues of the day, people's everyday lives in other quarters, and so on and so forth. There's no wider view here. And it leads to some very erroneous conclusions sometimes that perhaps the Holocaust and the persecution of Jews was the only thing that was happening in these societies in 1942. So, that's one 
aspect I'd like, I'd like to just throw into the, 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 into the argument. The second one is based entirely on an analysis of the rescue of Jews, ostensibly by Gentiles, by, by, by Christians and, and humanitarians, and the way in which the literature there has developed. There's been a very strong trend towards identifying righteous individuals. Many of you will know the, the, the work of Yad Vashem in Israel in doing exactly that. In looking at the behaviours of, and I stress the word, individuals, in order to try and work out um, those people who acted altruistically within the, the boundaries of the criteria that they used to be able to make, to make those awards. There are something like, my figure is from January 19 this year, um, something like 22,400 of them at present, but the number is growing all the time. And the second area of historiography is the fact that this whole um, set of behaviour patterns has also been picked up by sociologists. Sociologists who are more interested, or perhaps primarily interested, in trying to identify altruistic behaviour. So their purpose is not primarily historic, historical, but sociological. And that's nothing wrong with that in its own right. The problem is that the, the sociological studies tend, again, to ignore the context. And the studies of righteousness, whether they're based on sort of a, a, a Yad Vashem set of criteria, or on a wider criteria of trying to prove the saintliness of particular individuals, and there are innumerable books that try to do that, they all focus on the individual. What they miss out on is the surrounding context, because in many cases, the, the, the people who spoke are not interested in that. They don't understand where these individuals have come from, or who their, their friends and family were, or how they came to be, whether it speaks back to all sorts of questions of motivation. So what I want to try and do for the remainder of my talk is just to talk about a few possible areas for discussion. I've only got a limited amount of time, so I don't propose to throw many examples at you. The examples are there, and I can quote them if you wish. But just to give you an, an impression of the sort of areas that perhaps still need further discussion in a subject which is already overlaid with more scholarship than you can shake a stick at this. There's any amount of material already out there, but let's look at some two of the, the corners that may need still some further um, analysis and further discussion. The first thing to talk about, I think, is the nature of Jewish communities themselves in the pre-war era. Too often, perhaps, studies tend to assume that the Jewish victims, and I use the word in inverted commas, are essentially homogenous. They are there as victims to be helped or not to be helped, as the case may be. But many studies spend very little time identifying how different and differentiated those Jewish communities actually are, both in terms of their ethnic origins, um, national origins, linguistic origins, socioeconomic structures, and then also the very different organisational and leadership structures those different communities have. We talked last night, and it was, it, was, it was very instructive to listen to our speakers last night talk about the Danish case, but there was a sense in which there was a large degree of homogeneity amongst the majority of the Jews in Denmark, and that may well be true. 
But that wouldn't be true, say, if you looked at the situation in France and Belgium and the Netherlands, where there were very different and <coughs> multifaceted Jewish communities of different sorts. Their response to persecution and the responses of the remaining population to their persecution will vary according to who they were and where they were. You can see it in the, the differing responses in major urban centres, where in some areas where Jews were relatively integrated into working class neighbourhoods, for example in the 11th in Paris, then there's a lot more help going on there than in some other parts of the city. Now, I'm throwing that as an example, but we haven't been able to do a detailed study yet, as far as I'm aware, that would allow us to say a little bit more about it. But there will be many other people in the room who know far more about that than I do. Leadership structures, just for a moment, I think are also important. How do they function um, in times of, of stress? A great deal has been written about that over specific countries, and very little in others. But they too have a role to play. And I suppose what I'm trying to stress here is that even in terms of the concept of rescue, we're not just talking about the Jews as passive victims, but also as active participants in their own um, rescue, survival, if you will. Let me move on to a second point, which is the, the social and political backgrounds within which this takes place. Um, I'm not going to say too much about this because it's a comparative idea in its own right that would take all morning, but just to point out that the social and political circumstances within which these, the persecutions take place, isolation, deportation, and so on and so forth, are multifaceted. Not only in terms between countries, but also between locations. There are huge differences between urban and rural, for example and between one city and another, which might have a very specific um, relationship, or this Jewish community might have a very specific relationship with um, their Gentile neighbours. There's lots more that can be said about that, um, not least in terms of talking about a Jewish community in many cases which had become apostate. Regarded by the Nazi, incoming Nazis as Jews, these were often people who had no contact with Judaism whatsoever have had much more contact with political groups, for example. And we can see that in many parts of Western Europe, where Jew, Jews who were identified as Nazi Jews, nonetheless had um, antecedents going back within the left-wing community for many years. But of course that allowed them then to, in a sense, latch into those other communities in order to look for help at different moments. Indeed, one of the problems associated with historiography, which I haven't mentioned, but I think is appropriate to, to talk about here, is the fact that separate from the, all the literature about Gentiles, Christians, humanitarians, and other rescuing Jews, there is also a separate, and it is a separate literature, on Jewish self-help. Jewish self-help, which might involve armed activities against the Nazis, and there were um, Jewish organisations did exactly that, but also perhaps less noticeable, but nonetheless still effective, other Jewish self-help organisations, not least in terms of welfare organisations. And I'll say a few words, a few words <coughs> in just a moment. 
I said earlier on that many of the, the studies of rescue had focused on individual rescuers. That does present a problem because it tends to marginalise or ignore the very important um, aspect here, which is of people working not as individuals but in network terms. Networks of different formulation, and they can be many and various. The best example I can give you is of not so much of people being hidden, although there are many examples of that too, but of escape lines, where individuals were moved from one place to another. This was not done by one or two or three people. Dutch Paris, which was an organisation that smuggled some Jews and some other people all the way from the Netherlands to the Swiss border, um, had something like 300 members at its maximum um, extent. There were many other organisations, likewise, that had similar scope. Here again, the myopia kicks in. Holocaust studies has tended to focus on these escape lines and rescue networks purely in terms of what they did for persecuted Jewry. Yet if you look at them carefully... In some cases, their origins had nothing to do with the persecution of Jews, but started in 1940, helping deserters, escaping POWs, political enemies of the Nazis. In other words, the structures were already being created long before the deportations began. So it means in practice that you, when one starts to look more broadly, one finds that you know, somebody who might conceivably be honoured honored by Yehud Vashem for their activities in helping Jews would also have been sheltering pilots, um, sheltering deserters, perhaps trading on the black market, and all sorts of other things as well. It's not that clear-cut, and the danger of this sort of narrowing of the focus means we lose sight of this wider context. Networks and network theory, to come back to a sociological point, does also allow us to look at um, some other anomalies whereby it was mentioned last night, somebody mentioned Le Chambon and André Trocme, who almost single-handedly um, organised the sheltering of large numbers of Jews in a Protestant village in the middle of France. Um, I would put one codicil to that in the sense that there was not so very far away an otherwise Catholic village, Jolifi, which did exactly the same things, but it's not nearly as well known or as well understood yet, same sort of thing. But why in those places and not others? It's not down to Protestantism in an otherwise Catholic media, otherwise we would see it far more readily. It's down to the linkages and the individuals who create them. Trotman was sufficiently well organised to actually go and see the Quakers in the Southern France and say, what can I do to help? And was told, you know, this is what you can do for us. And that's how he got involved in the whole process. Um, so there are, there are all sorts of things one might look at in trying to explain the, the spatial distribution of rescue activities across many countries. <coughs> is to say that there are some very good examples of where linkages between what you might call Jewish resistance and non-Jewish resistance take place. I haven't got time to talk about it here now, but have a look at the activities of the Committee des de Forces des Juifs in Belgium, which of itself was an amalgam of Jewish organisations and non-Jewish organisations linked into resistance network, existing resistance networks, who managed to assist something like 30,000 people, including at least 12,000 Jewish adults, 
That's a phenomenal achievement for an organisation which was relatively small in terms of its scope, but nevertheless was able to latch into all sorts of other things um, and other networks as well, including the, the institutions of the Catholic Church. It's worth bearing in mind also, um, said he looking at the clock very quickly, um, in terms of other important linkages here. Welfare organisations, something I hadn't considered before, but social workers working in, in pre-war big cities in Europe had links one with another. So when Jewish welfare organisations went to look for help elsewhere, they contacted their non-Jewish welfare colleagues who they'd been to college with or to, to had worked with in the city beforehand. Those linkages were already there. They were exploited thereafter. Same happened in the camps in southern France. Originally set up, you know, certain charities went into helping the Spanish um, Republican refugees there. When Jews were shipped in as internees in 1939, the Jewish camp charities got involved. They then made contact with all these other organisations. They were still they were talking to each other in 1940 and working together in 1940. So by 1942, the linkages were already there. Things I haven't got time to talk about, the role of individual churchmen, both at top levels and archbishop and, 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 and church leadership levels, all the way down to parish priests. Their attitudes in many cases make a huge difference, not least because they were often the first point of call, the first option that people on the run had, because even if they were unsympathetic, they were unlikely to shock you to the Germans, or to trade you into the Germans. Three last things that I'll mention, just to the point of view of, of setting up a discussion, just to be slightly more controversial. One, um, the concept of the Nazi rescuer. There are plenty of well-known Nazis, and I'm, I'm not going to talk about Best and, 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 and Danish case here, but um, there are plenty of other um, Nazis who end up, in spite of their offices, rescuing, sometimes for good and sometimes for ill reasons, Jews. And they should not be ignored as Nazis. We can't honour them in any room, of course, but yes, and Yavashem certainly won't. But, but by the same token, they are nonetheless there. They are part of this picture. Second thing, very quickly, is that if one looks at Belgium, which again is the, was the best example of this, um, why do we think that the behaviour patterns that we see in World War II in relation to the persecution of the Jews are unique to that period? Look at Belgium. Many of the people involved in helping Jews and organizing resistance had done exactly the same things in 1914 when the Germans had arrived previously. Taking a different example, a completely different example, Rod Kedward, a friend of mine from the University of Sussex, wrote in his study of the, the Marquis in Southern France, he said, well, what are these guys doing? They are adopting the same resistance patterns as the Cathar heretics did in the 12th century. They're going and living out in the, going in the hills, using those shepherds' huts that have been there for 600 years. We shouldn't assume that everything that we see happening between 1939-1940-1945 is suddenly being invented for the first time. It's not. There is a whole back catalogue and a whole history to it. But that's 20 minutes. Thank you very much for your attention. Approach to, um, and I think that 
uh, we want to um, starting Holocaust and civil courts, we we have a need or 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 some people have a need to actually find some common pattern, some uh, conditions that that facilitates uh, civil courts or some conditions that on the contrary uh, uh, facilitate uh, people to become uh, 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 to become bystanders. Um, but when I listen to you, I won't get the feeling that it's so much dependent on the context and the concrete case, so that you cannot actually find any common patterns or any common conditions that facilitate civil courts or people to become um, uh, uh, to become uh, bystanders. And if I think about the discussion that we had yesterday, where um, where some of the speakers they uh, drew had, drew uh, had, had, um, uh, parallels to other countries. So they said uh, Denmark is uh, uh, can be compared to Spain in, in certain respects and to Sweden and, and to Norway, but the Danes they uh, behave differently. So in that sense, uh, uh, Denmark becomes an exception, as if. It was actually similar conditions that we had uh, uh, to other countries. But your talk more uh, seems to say that the only way that Denmark was an exception that there were actually is the fact that there were actually um, 8,000 people who managed to get out and and flee from the Holocaust. But that all the all the all the um, uh, but that all the factors that led uh, to uh, the Jews being able to flee, they cannot actually uh, be compared to other countries. Is that a correct? Wait, 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 I start with that. Um, <laughs> if there were simple answers to all these questions, we could isolate individual factors so easily. Um, I and many colleagues sitting in the room would be out of work very quickly if there was one simple answer. It doesn't work like that. I think what I was trying to do was to convey how complex this can become and how difficult it is to isolate, even especially at national. Most of the histories have been written at national levels. And only recently have studies started to be sort of come down to local local studies and say, well actually it's very different in one country from that. You look at the national statistics. You don't see anything. When you look at it locally, you start to see differentiations, both statistically but also in terms of experiences. And all I'm pleading for is, if it's in a sense, for any of you thinking of studying in this area, it's quite complicated. There's a lot of reading to do, and there are a lot of things that you have to, in a sense, bear in mind. One or two of them, which I've been able to outline this morning, but it is, it is more complicated. Just to come back to the Danish issue for a moment, which I know much less than most of the people in this room. Um, it is exceptional. It is often used at a very crude level to say, well, why didn't this happen everywhere else? But of course, in practical terms, the exceptionality of the Danish case is such that none of the factors that existed in October 1943 were actually present in other European countries at any time before 1945. And if you, if you want an answer to why this works in Denmark, that's the answer. So what do you actually uh, think is the value of having these comparative studies? 
<coughs> because history isn't straightforward. There are, you know, there are narratives. What was something really interesting that came up last night was to say, well, and to answer my own question, why are there very few studies, why, why is there no in-depth study of the Holocaust at an early stage after the Second World War? Because what countries and countries that are occupied, what they need is stability. They are far more interested in rebuilding and reconstruction. Only when they have the cultural luxury of going back and looking at the past, when the polities have been reconstructed, when there is a sense that society is now stable, then you can start to look more objectively at what had happened, what had been done, what was still wrong, and what right, what, what wrongs still need to be righted, both judicially and uh, in other things. But it takes a long time for that to happen. And, as we've seen in the context of, 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 of other examples, this does take periods of time. You know, you will not get the type of discussion, I was talking to one of your colleagues this morning, you won't get this type of discussion in Bosnia for a long time to come. It's too raw, it's too much part of the movement. In a sense, you almost have to move a generation before you can have the type of academic discussion that we're having here now. Thank you. And now we will open up for questions, comments. Mm -hmm. that helped in many countries in Europe. But incidentally, the Danish case is quite different in terms of Yad Vashem history, since uh, the, the Danish resistance told Yad Vashem when they asked about the individuals in the 1960s when they made this, this park, you know, uh, um, they, they said you shouldn't honor individuals uh, uh, as such because it was the Danes as such that helped. And so this national kind of myth became embodied in three small plaques in Yad Vashem, honoring the Danish people, the king, and the resistance. So in the Danish case, only relatively late uh, did the research begin to identify all the individuals who had not written you know, books about uh, the rescue efforts and so on. So in that sense, we are lagging a little bit behind in, in Danish research in finding the, the individuals who helped. Just a, a question about what you think about uh, this story. Um, I'm, I'm only too well aware of the, the, the exceptionality of the Danish resistance in that particular instance. Um, there are other organisations, I'm going to talk about the Netherlands just for a minute here, because there, for example, a big organisation set up to help labour draft debaters that also help Jews. They wrote their own history, um, but it's entirely written in the third person. There are no individuals mentioned in it. There's two volumes of this, and it's entirely... But... The other thing I would say about Yad Vashem is that to some extent at least there are contextual reasons why certain people get on at particular moments and, 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 and not others. There are more Dutch nationals honoured by Yad Vashem, I'm not sure it's still true, but it wasn't until very recently, than in any other country. In a country with 75% Jewish mortality. Why? Well, politically, the Dutch government was very keen to have its, its citizens honoured in that way as individuals because that wrapped up the numbers. I'm making it sound very manipulative, it's probably not quite as bad as that. But also, the Dutch government were the only government in exile to decide 
1944 that they were going to write an official history of the occupation. So that when the country was liberated in two stages, in 44 and then in 45, there were historians, and I use the contemporary word, embedded with the advancing soldiers, collecting testimonies, collecting information, which still sits in the, in the, in the archives in Amsterdam. And so there was a ready supply of information about who had done what in relation to the persecution of the Jews, which allowed them to do this almost as soon as Yom Hashem was created. But it creates anomalies, because other countries didn't have that facility, with the result that, as you rightly point out, that research has taken a lot longer to come to, and that's why we are still getting cases being brought in now. I have a comment and a kind of question. Uh, the first one is uh, continuing what was just discussed about Yom and the righteous among the nations. I thought actually it was Poland who had most righteous. That may well be true now, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, but it's in the same direction as your comment about the Netherlands, because even in Western Europe, Netherlands has a terrible percentage of Jews being killed, as has Poland, of course. Um, but uh, just uh, in Norway, the Yamashem um, announced that the whole Norwegian resistance movement was honored by the award of righteous among the nation, which uh, knowledge that we have today is not correct, because the resistance movement as such never helped the Jews, but individuals from the resistance movement did a lot to rescue the Jews which makes the decision made by Yad Vashem in 1977 a mistake, which is very sad. Um, but what I really wanted to comment on your talk was your emphasis on context, which is a very appropriate, and it also goes in the line with the discussion we had yesterday. Uh, however, I, I do think it's a little uh, strange to, to say that the sociologists don't use context because the, the question is where in the context do you end? I mean, what is in the surrounding and situation do you include and what do you... This is a, a long theoretical discussion and we're not going to take it now, but now I come to my question is, uh, you, you talk about the single example and sometimes uh, the single example is a single <coughs> Sometimes the single example is an example of something else, where you can generalize to a broader uh, context, so to say, or a broader phenomenon. And, and there I want to, to vote for, in a way, the single example can be something else than just a single example. That is my question, my comment. <laughs> okay, to answer your question, my comment, first of all. Um, <coughs> Of course you're right, of course there are. In, in, in any study, um, when you provide an example, you know that you're ignoring another 20 or 30. So inevitably you focus on, on a, an individual, maybe a couple of things, because you only have a certain amount of space. That's, that's inevitable. Um, I think that, that you're, you're quite right. Of course, single examples can stand for a great many other things. But you, in a sense, you need to be able to show that your other examples are all the same. It's quite, it's quite a difficult thing to do. And in any historical um, research, in a sense, your audience has to trust you that you are being honest about the conclusions that you draw. There's too much information out there to throw it all at an audience. That <coughs> My comments about sociology are partly based on a natural prejudice against sociologists, which all historians would share. Um, but, 
but partly not partly on, on, on the basis of the way in which some of the leading sociological analyses of these topics has been carried out. Where you, when you look at the methodology, you start thinking, hang on a second, there are things that are structurally wrong with this. But having said that, it is certainly the case that historians have used data extracted and information extracted by sociologists through interviews and so on for their own purposes. So it's a symbiotic relationship. I'm not suggesting one is necessarily better than the other because they're actually looking at very different things. Um, but the, the whole question of context, I think, is it, what I'm saying is I think the pendulum has swung too far one way and needs to be brought back rather than saying, oh, this is the right way of doing it and this isn't. As, as, a, as a teacher, as a professor of Holocaust studies, um, what do you want your students to know? Why, if they were to say, why are we studying this, what would be your answer? Um, I asked them that question. But I want to ask you that. Yeah, I, 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 I respond to whatever they tell me. Um, and also, I mean, what do I want them to understand? Um, I want, them to, I want them to have a deeper understanding of the topic as a whole, but I also allow them the scope to say, okay, I'm going to lay out um, a, a, a schema of what we might study in the course of this year. But also say to them, if there are issues that you would like to discuss which you don't see appended here, then that's what we'll do. We change the, we, we change the structure and the format in order to make that work. <sighs> The answer, to your, the answer to the real question that you're asking is actually quite difficult. I've taught in a number of, part, number of places in, in, in Britain, one or two overseas. The nature of the audience varies in terms of the ethnic backgrounds that people are concerned, um, and their interests will thus be different in terms of what they might glean from the study problem. Some are only interested in the Holocaust as the persecution of Jews and nothing else. So I'm not going to if I'm drawing parallels with other genocides from them, they will just switch off. Um, others are more concerned with wider humanitarian issues, and they will come with those agendas. So there's no, there's no single answer to, your, to, to, to that question from their perspective. Do I try and teach it in a particular way? No. It will vary according to the nature of the, the group that I'm teaching. Lady. Yeah. Um, I'm Lady Jorka from France. I want to say a few words about the Chambon sur Lignon because it's just like uh, your king, uh, uh, Christian the Dance, wearing the yellow star. Uh, there is a part of myth in the history of the Chambon sur Lignon. Last June, we inaugurated a memorial, a kind of small museum um, in the Chambon. So it's a very new one. And we count how many Jews have been saved. It's 900. So it's not 5,000 inhabitants in the Chambon who saved 5,000 Jews. That is a myth. And I fully agree uh, with what you say about the context. 
The Chambon Sauvignon and all the surrounding villages were a very peculiar place in the mountain, where, for example, children from the industrial parts, Saint-Étienne, mine calls, used to be sent to have some fresh air during the beginning of the 20th, end of the 19th century and beginning. So there was a tradition to, uh, to, to take these uh, children. So it was also a place where uh, Republic, Spain Republicans were refugees. And uh, of course, uh, uh, German and then Austrian refugees. So it was a very peculiar place. And it was also a peculiar place uh, of uh, a peculiar religion, which is not Protestantist, which was the majority in France or Germany. Uh, they were Calvinists, and some of them of a very, very peculiar denomination of Protestantism, which is Darabism, which is very special. I want to stress also that it was very, very controversial because the pastor, the, the chief of these Protestant communities, were very pacifist and they opposed the Maquis, the resistance. They were opposed to the armed resistance. And it was, it was the main reason why it was impossible to build a, a memorial center in the Chambon. Because one part of the population said, yes, of course, they saved the Jews, but they refused to fight the occupant. The second remark, I fully agree with what you said about the Jews. And even in the title, Civil Society Reaction to the Holocaust, I think that we have to think the Jews as part of civil societies. For example, in France, uh, kids, uh, Jewish kids, go to school from the beginning of the war of the occupation till the end, of course, except those who were arrested and deported, or those who were hidden. But in Paris, in August 1944, when the town was liberated, there were 70,000 Jews <coughs> wearing the Hero Star, unregistered, and we live in Paris, and we were not arrested. That is also a kind of, uh, of mystery. <laughs> and then we have uh, time for a last uh, question or comment. Good morning. Uh, <coughs> I'd like to uh, follow up on your comments about context and ask you to contrast uh, what happened here and what happened in the Netherlands? Two case studies. I asked this because I was born in the Netherlands. My parents lived through the war uh, in the Netherlands, and I 
heard a lot of stories from them. And it seems to me that we can analyze these two cases at several uh, levels. There's the different geography. It was easy to get to Sweden, hard to get to England uh, in those two cases. You had uh, a difference in terms of the, uh, the war itself. The Dutch chose to fight. That resulted in a different kind of occupation and imposed government. Uh, you had differences in the royal family. The Dutch royal family fled. Uh, the Danish royal family stayed here, but that had a, made a difference in terms of moral authority, perhaps. Uh, you had differences in the degree of assimilation uh, of the Jewish communities in the two countries. Uh, and, then, and then finally, the most, the most troublesome question for me is, at the human level, were there differences? I mean, were, were the Dutch more complicit in, in some way as a, as a people? Just before I answer your question, I'd like to thank Annette and the author for filling in a lot of the gaps that I wasn't prepared to do. <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, this has given me thinking time to try and work out how to answer your question. Um, the contexts in the two countries are very different. I don't think there's a simple answer to, to the question you've asked. I would, however, stress a number of things. To begin with, the fact that the German occupation of the Netherlands was on a very different structural basis to their influence in Denmark between 1940 and 1943. By the time we get to October 1943 in Denmark, there are no Jews, save about six, living legally in the Netherlands. They have either been already deported or are in camps on the way to being deported. So in terms of time scale, it gets to be very different. The fact that the Netherlands has a German civil administration means that it allows an almost unlimited scope for activity by the SS and the Gestapo, and an ability also to harness the resources of the Dutch police network, which the Germans are very effectively managing to undermine and take over, in a way that did not occur either in France or especially not in Belgium, um, and certainly not in Denmark, because the conditions are very different. It means that the whole process of identification, of registration, then of isolation and finally deportation was more or less seamless. Hans Blom, who wrote a very comparative article about this many, many years ago now, um, started off with a quote saying, you know, from Eichmann saying, there the trains ran so smoothly it was a joy to watch them. You know, in other words, the whole machinery of deportation worked better in the Netherlands than in France. Now, how do we understand? How, we, we, how does that work? One of the things was that unusually in the Netherlands, the system of population registration, then as now, was very, very effective. So when the Germans came and were looking for the Jews and saying, we're going to register all the Jews, the Jews so we've got to sign these laws, the authorities already know where we live. They didn't see this as a means of resisting. The only people who managed to avoid it were usually refugees, people who managed to without papers, who'd been living illegally, who thought that the last thing I want to do is register, I want to tell them I'm here. They managed to filter back into society in that way, but it was very small numbers. Most of the Jews that we think of as having lived in the Netherlands in, in May of 1940 did actually register. From then onwards, they were almost sitting targets in a way that was completely alien to virtually every other part of Western Europe. In terms of, it wasn't added to by the fact that the man who ran the population registry, a man called Jakob Lenz, was so keen on the idea of a complete and unalterable system. He invented identity cards and fingerprints. He went to Berlin to talk about his ideas and they thought, this guy's way ahead of anything we've got. And he's talking to the Gestapo. 
know, and he's one of these, I was going to say, unsung heroes of the collaboration. I suppose that's what you call him, because... And he never, under, he was a technocrat, he never understood why the resistance tried to assassinate him. He never understood why the resistance tried to throw bombs into these big buildings with card indexes. Some of you may know of um, Edward Black to work on IBM selling technology to the Nazis, to around Jews. Well, there's, there's, it's not quite straightforward as it sounds, and they were actually using machines for that purpose. But this, this whole idea of having that complete system, where, in a sense, there is no alternative. Yes, you can go underground, but there's no point trying to resist the system within, they're going to find you. And it's very difficult to move from one place to another because of the identity card system. That's not a complete answer. It, it shows you just how different the conditions are in the Netherlands in that period and how much harder it was for people to find hiding places, except in certain circumstances. I didn't mention, I'm just going to throw this into the house. There is a whole question about hiding the children, which we have not time to go into, but it also adds to this whole process. It doesn't apply in Denmark, because it all happens at once. But why are children singled out for you know, being hidden when adults aren't? just like to throw that one in as well. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Bob, um, for uh, giving us uh, such a brilliant start of the morning. And we're very sorry that you can't stay for the whole conference, but I think there are many who envy the students who are going to be talking <laughs> uh, tomorrow. And I think that you can rest assured that what you leave behind to us who will stay for the whole conference is that uh, no one will dare to talk about co co to talk about context and draw a very simple um, comparison or similarity. Uh, <laughs> thank you.